some of the most difficult kids that we've ever worked with. And by difficult, I'm, I didn't mean it was difficult to work with them. I meant they were facing a lot of difficulty. They were facing a lot of struggle and their struggles didn't always seem to abate no matter how much you loved them, no matter how hard you worked with them, no matter how many different skills you tried with them, they were really facing an uphill battle. The consistent thing about the most difficult kids that we worked with over the years was that they had been in orphanages and they had gotten to those orphanages out of very abusive situations with their parents. We tend to forget as parents when we're in the middle of the, the, the crisis and the tears and the screaming and the utter terror of wondering what's going to happen to our kids if they continue on this path or if they don't get help or if we don't, as parents, make a change ourselves, that, that we're going to lose them. The resiliency of human beings is what this episode is about. My guests today are Sherry and Jan Simmons. Now, you might know Sherry from a previous podcast about trauma and the brain. Sherry is the director of our program. The reason why I have Sherry back is A, she's brilliant, but B, Sherry and her mom, Jan, have written a book that's available on Amazon. It's called Which Way? It's hard to explain what this story is about, so I'm going to read you a paragraph. This annihilation now defined me, the me who could claim nothing as her own. I was so deeply ashamed of being so unlovable and so unwanted. The people who were supposed to protect me didn't exist. The people who were supposed to love me didn't exist. I was now imprisoned in a place where I had no chance of ever being loved. And that realization created a vast hole in my young soul that I had no idea how to fill. The story is about Jan's journey through her childhood and growing up. And it's also about Sherry being able to take Jan's experience and teach us how the brain works and how the brain deals with trauma. This is an important episode if your child has has had an experience, a traumatic experience that is guiding them through life, that's informing them how the world works. You need to hear this story. You need to read this book because the light at the end of the tunnel is not a train. It's hope. Welcome to Beyond Risk and Back. Honestly, I was just working my way up to death. I thought about killing myself every day. I was using all the time and that's not a sustainable lifestyle. My brother shot himself because of drugs. When you are using technology to lure children for sexual purposes, there's a couple of problems that concern me. But I remember feeling kind of relieved after hurting myself. Do you have any idea how much you were worth? I like to say it this way, great people are really built in the furnace of affliction. Our teens are navigating a world of information anarchy and increased stress and pressure. Drugs are glorified more than ever before, and there seems to be a suicide option that didn't exist prior. As adults, we are responsible to provide the help at-risk teens need. Have teens changed, or is it just the world they live in that's different? Is this why so many teens are traumatized or triggered? 
My name is Aaron Huey and in 2009, I opened a home for these teens with the hopes of giving them a second chance at creating the life we all know they deserve. Now I want to give parents the information that contributed to our success and to support them in navigating the at-risk world. These are the stories told by the teens and the techniques used by experts to help them. Welcome to Beyond Risk and Back. Welcome, Sherry. Thank you. Jan, welcome. <clears throat> How old were you when that realization of that paragraph that I just read? How old were you? Uh, I was probably 11, 10, 10 to 11. Sherry, a realization like that at 11 years old does not seem developmentally appropriate. What's going on that a child, 11 or even younger, has realizations like, I'm unloved, I'm unlovable, no one's here to protect me. What's going on? You know, in the case of my mom, um, she had to take over as the parent in her life uh, way too young. And so... Um, Somebody that has that kind of insight and knowledge that young is somebody that's had to raise themselves. Um, so, Jan, what was, can you give, certainly this book is a good inch thick, and so to try to give an overview of your childhood, which you have given us the in-depth here, what are the cliff notes that led you to at 11 years old realizing that... It was up to you, and there was, there was no one else for you. Uh, I lost my dad through death at, when I was three years old. Um, immediately, I lost my brother, who moved in with my paternal grandmother, our paternal grandmother. And so I lost my dad. I lost my brother, and my mother became a severe alcoholic. So I lost my mother and I was on my own. I had no one to turn to. I had to figure things out on my own. You talk about in the story, having memories of watching your mother get arrested, uh, bringing uh, uh, countless men home and it gets worse from there. Right. What happened? Um, invariably, uh, fights would ensue. My mother was a, she wasn't a calm alcoholic or a happy alcoholic. She was a violent alcoholic. And I would be in my room listening to things start to escalate. And I remember I would put my hands over my ears and say, mom, just don't talk, just don't talk. I would say to myself, because I knew when she talked, the fighting was going to, and the dishes were gonna be thrown and the beatings. And, um, and so I, um, it's okay. So when when you heard the beatings, when you you heard the dishes being thrown, what was coming next? They were coming at me. They would be. I would either be in a closet closet hiding in my bedroom, or I would be under the bed. And not always, but many times, they would come and get me. You write in the story that the physical abuse. There was also sexual abuse. Correct. Okay, and this is this is not only um, with with men that perhaps your mom didn't know was happening. There were times that your mom did know it was happening, and in fact, uh, a participant as far as 
offering you. Correct. This leads ultimately to you being in an orphanage. It does. I, um, I was left alone a lot on weekends so that my mother could go and she didn't come back until Monday. And, um, so I was left alone. Um, I was reported to the police by neighbors and the police came and, uh, picked me up at the police station and, um, made me tell them that she was only that I had left the house and she was out looking for me. Right. And, um, then, uh, so then I started going with her, uh, on the weekends and, um, I was beaten by my mother, by men in her life. I, uh, one beating from my mother resulted in a kidney damage and, um, I was eventually taken away by the state and put in an orphanage after about five to six years of my mother. The experience of your transition from being in the hospital to being in the orphanage, um, it's, and, and, and Sherry, this is where I want to talk to you about how the brain is, is working for a child at this point, because the experience your mother talks about is a constant, you know, wishing for her mother to show up and visit. And at one point, mom does and she's again arrested and you're you're watching her being arrested at the hospital when she's coming to visit yes and it's it's a lot of fear that that um that she's going to be alone Mm -hmm. yet the person that she's afraid is going to leave her alone has has brutalized her at what point does our brain say hey they're not a safe person and why do we keep running back to an attacker because in a child's mind, negative attention is better than no attention. I mean, the idea to a child, my goodness, the idea to an adult of being alone in this world is more terrifying than being with someone who continuously abuses us. Here, here's the thing that the brain does with something like this. We know that our brains learn through patterns, okay, and and adapt to patterns. So if the pattern is continuous neglect, continuous abuse, the brain adjusts to that and and, um, can adapt very well, actually. When the brain starts to struggle is, is with unpredictability. Um, in fact, the children that we work with who have had a lot of um, unpredictability and, and instability in their lives are the ones that tend to, to struggle the most um, because the brain can't get used to that pattern. Is she going to be there for me today? Even if it's a beating, is she going to be gone? Which, which is it? And, and the brain struggles to, to reconcile that. Does that It does. It seems that for a young child, the number one cause of anxiety is separation. Absolutely. Okay. So that's what we're talking about. We're talking about that the separation was worse than the beatings. Right. We now move into the orphanage. And one of the experiences that sticks out to me is having all your things taken, sleeping in a different bed each night, having nothing of your own. As you look back on that now, um, I would assume it doesn't make sense. But why did they do that? Why did they make all the kids not have personal belongings? 
I, I honestly don't know what their thinking <laughs> was on that. I know what I was told, and that was every uh, nothing here belongs to you. Nothing belongs to you. So the wounding of separation is made worse by not being allowed to attach. Right. Have orphanages changed that? Do we, do we have an experience now in our industry, Sherry, in we work with kids who are not around their families for a minimum of four months. You've, you've worked with children in this industry for, for what, we're talking 28 years now? Mm-hmm. Um, we work with kids who are away from their families. You and I know that there's a danger point of allowing them to attach to a facility like ours, but they have to attach to heal. So where's this healthy balance? And I understand what they might've been thinking. Hey, this is not a permanent place. Don't let them attach here, but there's a sickness to what they did with your mom. So where's what's healthy attachment? Where does attachment become unhealthy? Yeah, I mean, this industry changed in the 70s and 80s when when we started learning that removing children from their homes and having them stay in treatment somewhere and not allowing them the items that they need to uh, feel secure, not allowing them to build connections with the staff members who worked with them was doing more damage. Um, you know, I remember sitting on the couch and hearing the story when, as a child, um, as a young adolescent, about my mom's experience in the orphanage and thought, that's it. That's exactly what I'm going to do with my life is run residential facilities. They're not called orphanages anymore. Um the way that they should be. And so, you know, the kids that come into Fire Mountain come in with their own bedding and their stuffed animals and their pictures of family. Um, as, a, as a staff, we, we love on these children. We, we nurture them. We want them to feel the connection that we have with them. Um, we tuck them in at night. We tell them we will miss them when we leave on shift and come back the next day. Um, those are all important things for kids to be able to progress through all the developmental stages of their life. If kids don't have that, they stay stuck in that developmental stage and they can't move any further. What were some of the things as a mom, Jan, did you experience that you can think back on now that were you being stuck in, in, how do I say this in the orphanage, essentially that there, there was a line where your parenting with Sherry must have shifted, where you saw that um, that you were parenting out of a reaction to your childhood versus taking charge of your life. Does that make sense, what I'm asking? Yes, it does. I, um, first of all, having a family of my own was primary in my life. I needed something that I could bond with right. and, and, and for them to bond back with me because I didn't feel any kind of a bond I, with anyone growing up. But uh, I gave to my uh, girls what I wished had been given sure. to me. In all honesty, I think when I played with my daughters or I uh, baked cookies with my daughters, I was actually 
doing that with the child that was in me. Right. Um, and as they as they grew, um, I did try to become. I, I tried to grow up with them <laughs> and and give them what they needed as as adults. And again, it was a struggle for me because I didn't have. I didn't have anything to yeah what do you model to model right I had nothing to model and and I think that it you know someone once said that don't worry when you have a baby uh, it it comes with an invisible handbook you know if you just go to instinct inside right. you know how to nurture and I just gave way to that yeah, did, did at some point did you feel that it was the right time to talk to your girls about your childhood? Oh, okay, right. Um, no, I never wanted them to know <laughs> about my past. That was actually an instruction from my therapist. Wow. That um, and mainly it's with my oldest daughter Sherry that I wrote the book with. Uh, she was so inquisitive and very intuitive and my therapist told me you need to give her something because what she is thinking is going on with you might be worse than what really is because you can't go through some of the horrific stories I was giving her and what that did to me emotionally you know I couldn't always disconnect and become the uh uh perfect mother. I I had to deal with what was going on. So I did, uh, at, was it around 12 sharing? Wow. I did uh, give her, I let her know that I didn't grow up in a family. I grew up in an orphanage. I, of course I didn't go into the sexual abuse. Sure. She knew I was physically abused. Um, and, and it did, she hated it, but it did offer her some, um, comfort to know she thought I was dying well that's that's what I was going to say is is that if was her therapist right was the story in your head worse or it it put meaning to what I was seeing I um you know I would see I I was seeing PTSD and didn't understand sure um I would see my mother dissociate and and at you know, 10, 11, 12, I didn't know what that meant, but she would go away and I'd be talking to her and she was in, I could tell she was in another place and, and another time. Um, and I didn't understand that. And so it put meaning to what I was seeing, the anxiety and the fear, um, knowing what happened to her helped me understand as a child, um, what trauma was and, and how it how it manifested and how it how it looked in a person's life. You know, as kids, and I, and I have this question for both of you because I've we've now heard a little bit about yours, and I'm curious about yours. And we call it the vow. Is that there's somewhere around 14, 15 years old that as a child we experience our our lives, our parenting, uh, a situation. You know, I, I remember very clearly my my family and I have laughed about this a jacket at a store. I needed a jacket. Winter was coming. I was at I was at the store. I saw a jacket and I was with my dad and I asked him to buy me the jacket and he wouldn't buy it without my mom's permission. And I was so angry at my dad. Just be a man. Buy the jacket. He was so angry at me. He was like, you little brat. And, and it, was, it was a time that I said some pretty rough things to my dad. Um, 
I look back on it now and completely understand. I, I certainly feel terrible for the way I treated him in that moment. But that was also a moment as a kid that for better or worse, I made a vow. I will always make my own decisions about what I buy. And that's led to some issues. But it's also led to some freedoms where I don't have to seek permission to buy things. And that has led to overspending on my own. So I'm curious, Jan, as to when you made the vow to do exactly what you said, which was to give your your kids, wanting a family and giving your kids what you never received. Do you remember that? I absolutely remember it. I was, uh, maybe not specifically sure. about a child, but I remember I was sitting at um, the kitchen table and I was coloring and my mother had been gone for several days. She walked in. She, her makeup was smeared all over her face. She didn't have all of her clothes on. She reeked of, of vomit and alcohol. And I looked up at her, relieved that she was home because she was my mother. But... I remember looking at her and thinking, I don't know how, but I will never be like you. How old were you? I was, it was before the orphanage, so it would have been probably around seven or eight. Mm -hmm. See, once again, Sherry, we're talking about something that should be happening around 14 to 16 years old. Right. Why does the brain, like, like this is like... I don't know how to describe this, but but she's doing something at a seven and eight year old that is not supposed to happen. That's real developmental issue. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mom had to go back and relive all of her developmental stages. Yeah, uh, in order to heal properly. Um, I think the fascinating thing with mom's story is um, it kind of chokes me up a little bit, but um, the brain is fascinating in terms of what it develops in order for us to survive and cope with extreme situations. Um, I mean, the brain kicked into gear for my mother and taught her how to parent herself when she shouldn't have, when she shouldn't have had to. Right. Um, one of the things that, that you read in the book is um, when mom went to the orphanage, um, she talks about a treasure chest yeah. full of jewels and diamonds and pearls. And, and, you know, here was a little girl in an orphanage who had to, they all had to change beds each night so they didn't get uh, connected to any one bed. And mom remembers schlepping this trunk, you know, from, from bed to bed each night. And when the other children fell asleep, opening her trunk and going through all the jewels and holding them up in the sunlight or the moonlight and, you know, um, making decisions about which aunt would get, get which ring when they came to visit. Mom believed that that trunk was real until she was in her 30s, 30s or 40s, right? And, and in therapy, uh, finally came to the realization with her therapist that that wasn't real at all. Yeah. That was imaginary and made up. That's an example of what the brain does to help us cope with circumstances that are horrific. You know, the first time I heard that story, my experience was, and then, and then listening to you talk about that, because we were that was that was told it with all staff and everything, and all the staff was listening. 
to this about how the brain can concoct this thing. And my, my, my mind that is always obsessed with symbolism said, my God, through all of this, you carried your self-worth with you. Like that's, that's what you had is that, and because nothing else was your own. So you, you held on to that. How? How did I hold on to the idea of the trunk or my self-worth? Yeah, the, you had value through everybody and everything. And even a parent dying can threaten a child's self-worth. Absolutely. How could you leave me? Divorce threatens a child's self-worth. Right. Adoption says, so from the very beginning, you were three when your father died. So from, from the very beginning, and you talk very fondly about how you were your daughter's, your, your father's little princess and the kissing and... Um, and even your, your, your memories are how her brain has, has remembered the details of these things that she's described as you're describing your mom coming home mm -hmm. and you're coloring on the table, the details that you can, you can bring oh, My brain doesn't work like that. I have to take a picture and look at it to remember details. So your, your brain's in this hyper mode. And so within this hyper mode, you have held on to self-worth. What, what why how well the trunk was my self-worth it was in the orphanage as a child i i don't believe i had that at all and because i couldn't find it within um i i I did uh, materialize this this trunk and my thought as a little girl in the orphanage was that if anyone from the family ever comes to visit me, I can give them these jewels and they will want me. So it was devastating. I, I never questioned that the trunk was real. I couldn't. I would have had to question that I was real. Right. It was it was the only thing that I had. And um, so having that trunk was uh incredibly important to me learning that it wasn't real was at at 35 or 40 learning that it it really wasn't real uh that's when i had to figure out where my self-worth was because i no longer had the jewels so i had to have the i had to figure out what my self-worth was how do you go back when you have something as real as a trunk full of jewels um, that you're going to give away to family members who come visit, which just that statement, it's just yeah. what a punch to the heart, you know, that if you come and visit me, I'll give you this, this worthy, wealthy, valuable piece of myself that there you are still ready to give parts of yourself away mm -hmm. for love. And do you go back? How do you know which parts were real? How do you know which parts were another trunk? And were there other trunks? Were there other imaginary parts of your childhood that you were like, oh yeah, that part wasn't real too? Um, no, because I didn't have happy memories as a child that I went back and questioned, did that really happen? I barely remember, I only have one memory of my uh, dad before he died uh, of us on a plane and telling me about the moon. And the only reason I know that that is not something I conjured up is my aunt, my mother's oldest sister, 
confirmed it. She knew about that story. And so, and the abuse, uh, as far as conjuring that up, and I'm not sure that's where you were going, but yeah, you, I I couldn't have conjured that up. But, but what that makes me want to ask you is, is, is that what the brain does when, when all you remember of life is the unhappiness that the brain says we have to create some happy? Well, <clears throat> I'll tell you in the case, yes, and I'll tell you in the case with mom. Um, mom spent her early adulthood into middle adulthood doing everything she could to push down and shove away any memories of her past. Um, How could you not? Exactly. And, and again, the brain's way of, of coping and surviving with all of that. Um, and I talk about it in the book, but mom really started to struggle with her weight uh, when I was a, a young child. And, you know, I would see this woman go to Weight Watchers and follow diets, eat nothing but lettuce and drink water, and still the weight, the weight comes on, right? And I, and I didn't understand that as a child. Um, and there was an instance when I was about eight years old and um, walked into the kitchen. Mom was, was cooking breakfast and she turned around holding pots and pans, turns around and looks at me and she didn't see the face of her daughter. She saw the face of her, of her mother uh, because apparently I look a lot like uh, her, her mother. And she froze, dropped the pans, food went everywhere. She was frozen. And it was then that memories really started coming back to mom. While she had had some flashbacks while we were younger, the memories really started to come back at that moment. Right. Uh, the memories that she spent 20 years trying to pack away and shove away and ignore. Um, when she went into therapy and started talking about the memories, the weight instantly came off. So you had just been carrying the past with you. Absolutely. And I was, and I was swallowing it down every day. How, when did you leave the orphanage? Um, ages are a little vague for me, but I am going to say I was around 15 to 16. And went with a family? Went. <laughs> I spent over 10 years in the orphanage without one family member coming to visit me. I was thrilled on this particular day. An aunt appeared. She and I, I didn't question. I just, I I left with the clothes on my back because that's all I owned, all all that was mine. And she said, I'm taking you to your grandmother's. I thought I was going to my paternal grandmother where my brother was, whom I had not seen in 16 years. And what I found out was she was taking me to my maternal grandmother who was terminal with cancer and I was going to be taking care of her as she advanced into the last stages of cancer. How hard was it for you to make the transition in your life um, to really take care of yourself? Because we have the survival self-care. And then, <laughs> then you have the, the fact that as a child, you were taking care of your mom. Now you've got kids. All your memories are flooding back, and you have to start to practice real self-care. Talk about that experience of real self-care. Well, to be honest, uh, it didn't occur until after 
I ended my 31 year marriage. My children are adults and they're living, living on their own. And, um, it wasn't until I moved out on my own and I finally said, it's time for me. And in all honesty, Sherry's been my daughter, my best friend, my confidant. She's also been my therapist <laughs> as an adult. And, and she has said, mom, what are you going to do today? What are you, what are you going to do to make, make, a little bit of relaxation for yourself. What do you, and you know, I started journaling. I started leaving sticky notes. Uh, in all honesty, one of her favorite lines to me is a quote from you, Aaron, which is what, ask yourself, what are you going to do to take care of yourself today? And that's a very profound statement. We don't do that. Right. And Sherry lives by that statement of yours. And she reminds me of it. And so I, I play, I'm 71 and I play now, finally. So what does it look like? How do, how do you play? Um, I go to movies. Yeah. I, um, I, I like to read. I like to do fun things. If I just, uh, last week I had kind of had a bad day. I took myself to Baskin Robbins and I got a double, a double ice cream cone. Little Jan loved it. I, I, I called her after work and said, what'd you do today? And she said, well, I took little Jan out for some ice cream. And that was, that was a beautiful moment. Is that healthy to parent little Jan for big Jan to parent little Jan? Yeah. Yeah. We talked to the kids about this a lot that um, you've got to go back in time all of us have to go back in time and reparent ourselves yeah. a little bit and give ourselves the things that we might not have received in our childhoods. So whether that's a message of you beautiful little girl, um, you know, we have the kids write stories to their little selves, um, reminding them of the beauty that they have and the skill that they have and their personality Um so yeah, whether it's giving yourself the messages that you didn't hear, whether it's giving yourself the activity that you didn't have as a young child. I remember one time when I was an adolescent mom, took herself to the park and was swinging. Um, and, and that was a request of your therapist at the time. And that was a powerful lesson to me in, in watching that and thinking that is exactly what we have to do to move ourselves through the developmental stages that we're stuck at. Um, take ourselves to the park and play. And I was stuck in a lot of, of uh, things that I had missed out on. I remember my therapist telling me, she said, have you ever done anything that you were not supposed to do? And I said, no, wow. never. Because I used to, Aaron, in the orphanage as a little bitty girl, I used to wash my mouth out with soap. If I, my own mouth, until I gagged, if I had, if I said something that was unkind or in my mind that was not okay, I had to be my own um, moral compass. And I, and my therapist said, have you ever not done, have you ever done something? And she said, I said, I've never even stole a piece of gum or cut in line. And she said, you've missed so many yeah. steps. We have 
it, in the years of doing this work, I, I remember walking by uh, one of our counselor's office and, and the young boy from the Russian orphanage, the counselor and the young boy were laying on their bellies on the floor. And this is a 14-year-old boy who was so obsessed with being cool because he had to fit in and have friends. And they're laying on their bellies and they're coloring. And the boy's holding the crayon in his fist like you would expect a two-year-old and completely coloring outside the lines. And the therapist is very much you just listening because the boy is just talking away about everything. And a week later, uh, they, they push that boy on a swing. And watching this 14-year-old, it, it was at a teen dance, a sober rave. And this 14-year-old boy who was so obsessed with being cool was completely disregarding all the, all the teen girls dancing and and being pushed in a swing by adults and screaming wee wee as he's moving back and forth across this this warehouse where this dance was so you've left the orphanage now you're dealing with a with a grandmother who is dying you're taking care when did your life start and and I and I don't know if that's a fair question but I I want to know when when was the past over? When did you actually say, hey, I survived my childhood and now I can do what I want with my life? Well, I think that surviving my childhood is an everyday process because there are triggers that, um, that take me back there. Uh, I can hear a child crying, a baby crying in a restaurant or a, a Walmart and I'm terrified for that child. Uh, so I get swooped back. Uh, there's a lot of self-talking that has to go on um, with that little child, maybe just hungry or wet, or but not necessarily abused. Uh, again, I'm going to have to say that my life uh, as an adult probably started at the age of 50 when I was on my own. Uh, again, for the first time, no family to raise, no husband to look after. And I started doing what was interesting to me. An interesting concept, concept uh, of another level of therapy that I had was when I got the divorce, I was devastated. Uh, I was in love with this man. And but he was very bad for me. I had to get a little bit of a therapy boost uh, at the time of the divorce. And it was a different therapist this time. And he asked me, he said, well, tell me what you enjoy doing. Now, I'm 51 at right. this time. Right. And I just looked at him at him without I, I didn't know what the answer was. And he said, oh, my God. He said, no one's ever asked you what you enjoy. So my homework was to go through a magazine, cut out. He said, don't question why you're cutting this picture out. Don't analyze it. Just cut it out. And I did. And I made all of this, this huge collage. And I learned so much about myself by just taking the time to be with myself and look inside myself. I learned that I love to travel and I love the color pink and I, you know, I could go on and on. It was astounding. Just because I, you I, took that time. I was 51 years old. So I guess that's when my life began. Wow. What other coping skills do you see your mom 
use even to this day when when you see her start to disassociate or or go numb or you see the eyes i, I can say since we've talked there's been a couple times where i see you sink back and your hands immediately go to your throat and i'm like okay like there's there's been a trigger what what do you see her also do you know there's a a panic uh, that usually happens every time we go out. Um, if there's a, a man walking towards us on the side, you know, on the sidewalk, or like she said, a, a baby crying in a restaurant, and there, there was a time when mom would start to have a panic attack, and she'd start to hyperventilate, and and you know, crouch herself in and try to protect herself. Um, and we've had to work on how you regulate yourself in those moments. And, you know, there was a period of time where we would talk about, okay, let's take some deep breaths. Um, let's do some self-talk here. This man is just walking past us on the street and isn't going to hurt you. And that baby is crying because she's tired. And, um, and now I see mom doing that herself. Okay. Um, I, I can see her mind spinning and I can, I can almost see her, her self-talk changing. Um, when we're at a restaurant and a baby's crying, she, she'll look panicked for a second and then she'll, you know, start to, to, to speak out loud. You know what? I bet that's, that baby's just tired. I bet that baby's just wet right now. She'll get up nonchalantly walk to the bathroom to make sure the baby's okay. <laughs> but, it, but it's a process that, that she's had to get to. Uh, where she can now do that herself. You do baby drive-bys. Yes, I do. You know, one of the things that was fun to watch when mom was going through her therapy, um, one of the assignments her therapist gave her was um, to have a plastic bat. She sent mom home from therapy with a plastic bat, and the assignment was to get in touch with her anger and, you know, go hit a tree outside. And I would watch mom come home with this bat and go outside, watch her through the window, and she'd stand by the tree and sort of, you know, swing the bat. And then she'd get distracted and pull weeds. And, um, you know, all the weeds were finally gone in the yard. This went on for weeks. And, and I was curious to see what she was going to finally do with the bat. And one day, she walks in from therapy, walks straight to the backyard, picks up the bat, and just starts beating the tar out of this out of this tree and, and screaming and getting in touch with that anger. And again, as an adolescent, I didn't quite understand what was going on, but it, but it, it was a powerful moment in my childhood um, to see you connect with emotions that most of us feel all throughout our childhood. You were too scared to show anger because anger meant you were going to get beaten. Um, so now I see her expressing anger um, in, in a healthy way. I'm so angry this happened today. I never thought my mom would get to that point. It seems that one of the things that keeps people from therapy or when they get into it, keeps them holding back is the idea that if I, if I let this loose, it's, it's going to go out of control. I'm going to lose all control again. And if I lose control, I'm, I'm abandoned, I'm abused, uh, I'm alone. Um, and I certainly, I, th I think everybody certainly has a, you know, if, if I get angry right now, like no one can control this. 
So what's the skill for that? What is the therapeutic skill of, of beginning to feel the feelings that you're so terrified of feeling because that moment that dam breaks, it's a flood and you're going to destroy all everybody downstream. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, we hear the kids talk about that a lot. You don't want the flood. You don't to want open. to ask me that question. Right, <laughs> right. The therapists and the counselors here really work on creating enough safety in the relationship with these kids because it's relationships that heal people yeah. right um the connection that they can learn to let that out uh a little bit at a time so let me give you a couple of examples we we talk with the kids about the the pop bottle you know that you shake the pop bottle you let the cap off and it explodes right and so the work in therapy is to let the cap out lo loosen the cap a little bit at a time you know that's a little bit at a time so that there's not an explosion um you'll hear the kids here on property screaming with their therapist outside. Yep. God bless those cows that we have on property <laughs> because the other day I was driving home and a therapist had a kiddo out at, at the pasture and the cows were just right up there at the fence line watching the, watching the kiddo and the kid was screaming and crying and why did you give me up and why did you put me up for adoption and screaming and yelling and those cows were just you know chomping away and listening and I thought wow good work that this yeah. therapist provided enough safety that the kid learned that they weren't going to self-destruct if they let if they got in touch mm -hmm. with that anger do you remember what uh, you were swinging at that tree about? Yes, I do. Uh, most definitely the abusers in my life. My mother, whom I love to this day, I do love her, but um, she made very poor choices and I paid for them. And uh, I, it was her face first that I saw. And then some of the, the abusers that flashed across and I didn't feel it at the moment, but I would say I did not deserve that. Right. And my therapist, I, she, I, she told me to say, to say these words, I did not deserve that. I am lovable. And I said, but I don't feel that way. Right. And she said, say it anyway, say it until you do believe it. So the words acted like a key to unlock it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Wow. I do think that that anyone, you know, going into therapy, um, uh, it's you get wonderful tools, but it's an up and down process. You don't go to therapy and garner all of these tools and think that the first thing that's going to come up, you're going to be right on. <laughs> you're going to be able to do it because it just, it doesn't come automatic. It is a, it is a process of, but then it starts becoming uh, more natural to you. Uh, you just have to keep at it. I know, I know that I'm going to get feedback and emails from this, from women who are saying, you're telling my story. And that's, and that's, uh, so, because these women are listening to you saying, oh, my God, she's she's telling my story, you know, versions of it, um, parts of it. What do you want to say to these moms out there who 
know exactly what your life was like because you're describing theirs? What do they need to hear from you? Uh, stay at it. Don't, don't give up. Don't, uh, listen to your own voice and say it loud. Um, uh, don't be afraid to stand up for yourself in any circumstances. Uh, you respect starts with you personally. It starts. So I, I'm learning to respect myself. I'm learning that I do have things that are valuable to say and that can be passed on. And uh, but I think there I have moments of just wanting to give up, uh, but. Don't stay strong, even if, even when you don't feel strong. Uh, going back to my therapist, that she said, uh, I, "I don't care if you don't feel it, do it anyway." And I did that. I would do it anyway, and I would think this is not going to get me anywhere because I'm not really believing in what I'm doing. But it did. One day, I did believe it. If you could, if you could come down to, to answer this question in one word or one sentence, and I don't know how it's possible, but again, how did you survive this? Uh, I'm not sure. <laughs> um, I knew I wanted something better. I knew I wanted to leave something on earth that was better than what. I had in my life. And the only way for me to do that was to change it. I had to change the legacy. And my whole life was driven on changing the legacy. Yeah, which way is about the choice that we all have to make, whether it's coloring at a table at the age of six, or whether we're 51, making a choice to take a different path than the one we were shown. Absolutely. Um, because honestly, the one we were shown is easier. Yeah. It, you know, we know it, it's familiar. The other path means you've got to put in the work, you've got to do the healing. Um, and sometimes that can be hard to come face to face with the things in your life that um, are ugly and painful. Um, but if we don't do that, then we pass on unhealthy coping skills and, and distorted thinking to the generations after us, and then they pass it on to their children. It's really about the choice that we all ought to make. How do we create that moment of consciousness? How do we step, and, and I think we understand, and I, and I, and I, and I love that, that that's the title of the book, is which way, which way are you going to go? Are you going to do that thing, that, that legacy, like you said, or are we going to go this, this other way, this, this two roads diverged into a yellow wood, and, and at the end, we, we choose the one less traveled by. How do we get the moment of consciousness to make the choice? when we're in the middle of the crisis. It's so different for every person. Um, you know, I have parents tell me, um, I'm tired of living this way. And I think when you get to a point in your life where, like you did, Mom, as a young child, when you know you're not going to be that, or as an adult, when you think, I'm tired 
with feeling sick and depressed and spinning and 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 you know going through the same loop um that's that's usually the moment where where people are open to doing something different and you know i talk in our parents weekend about sometimes it isn't changing your entire life sometimes it's changing one one little thing one dance step and then and then the whole dance changes right. so so maybe it's the realization for a parent of i'm tired of feeling this way and it's doing one thing different. It's taking yourself to a movie. It's getting into therapy. It's um, looking at help for your child. It's it's one little step that, that changes the whole scenario. The moment that we, we start to break out of the pattern and the habit of, of the life we've had, the, re, the, the repetition, the conditioned experience, um, the moment we step out, we say, you know what, I'm gonna do this like you said, 51 years old. Um, that's when the dragon shows up and tries to invite you backwards. Like, like you get, you try to get pulled back into the old way of living because it was easier. Do you have a version of that? Uh, sure. I mean, I can't give an exact example right off my mind right now, but um, there's a voice that when I want to think that I have just said something profound and the, the, uh, there's a voice on my shoulder that says, you're stupid, you're not intelligent, what you say has no meaning and no merit, and, and, my, and my heart will sink for a minute, and then I'll say to myself, it's okay. What you said was your truth, and it doesn't matter if someone else agrees. So you just did it right there, didn't you? Because what you just said was so perfect and profound. And the moment you stopped saying it, you looked at me and asked me if that was okay. <laughs> Oops. And and what's amazing about this, what I what I was telling you at the beginning before we started recording this right. podcast, is that what what you've created here by telling your story it's a lifesaver for people who've been through this and don't have the voice yet. You're, you're their voice. And then what you've done, Sherry, is you've taken Jan's voice. You've, you've taken this story that, that, that every page you turn, when you're telling your part of the story, you're like, how on God's green earth is she still alive? How did she make it? And then you explain to us how she made it why it's happening, why her brain's working this way, how trauma works, how recovery works, how triggers work. You guys have not just told this, this profound story. You've also explained to us why, why it works, why survival happens. So I, I think it's incredible. I, I think it's incredible to, to, to ask about your dragon. That's what I like to call it. Because right there in that picture, the dragon's talking right in the ear saying, oh, that didn't make any sense. And, uh, and there it was, is that you said something so profound and true and then questioned it. And yet here you are still saying it. Here you are still telling the story. And now it's for everybody to read. This is, this is incredible. And I'm, I'm in utter awe of you. I'm in utter awe because you're still here. 
you did survive your childhood. You you did, and and now you're you're a champion. You do your baby drive-bys to make sure that other babies are are okay and safe, and that that says a lot. And being this vulnerable. And it struck me, not just in the book, telling a stranger who's going to read it, but being as vulnerable with you, her own daughter, who, who knows the ins and outs of the psyche, who, who she's really open to you, all of it, not just, not just her story, but her brain. Um, you, you said it was at 12 that you decided that this was what you were going to do. That's when you made your vow, a little early for you as well. And this is what you've done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of, um, I don't know if it's retribution or, or what it is for me, but um, being able to run facilities where children are treated with the compassion and the love that they deserve and giving them treatment instead of warehousing them um, has become something I'm obsessed with. Um, and, and it was because of mom that, that, that passion first, first grew. So I consider it an honor to get to work with the kids that I do and, and, and treat them the way that I wish my mom had been treated. Tony uh, Robbins said a long time ago, um, that, uh, best revenge is massive success. <laughs> and I know not having a, a biological father in my life that there's a part of me that has become the bastard father to a thousand children. Mm-hmm. And that has been uh, my experience of, of coming around to finally saying, wow, I'm okay. I survive not having a father by giving what I never received. That's what I see that you've done. Uh, thank you. Uh, absolutely. Uh, hopefully, I, I'm glad that's what you see. Um, I, I'm really moved by, of course, coming from an orphanage that was so horribly uh, run and children were not even uh, human. Um, I'm really moved by the the parents that are so um, engaged with their children that come here and try to get help. I don't even know what my life could have been had I had that kind of um, engagement and that kind of um, drive to and support the support that these parents give their children to come here and try to give them a a better start in life with whatever their difficulties might be. Uh, that is amazing to me. It, I, I've, not, I've never seen that. I've never seen that. And I commend the parents that uh, devote their time, their money, their lives to giving something better for their children. It's astounding. And from the very beginning of you being 12, you've been able to do this work, Sherry, all these years, knowing that you can survive it. You can, you can, that's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. I learned at a young age, um, how to turn pain into something powerful. Um, 
I'm forever grateful to, to my mother for showing me that because um, I get to see it every day with the kids that, that we work with here. Um, they're taking their pain, whatever that is for them, and learning they can turn it into something really powerful in this world. The idea that, you know, for everybody who's listening, that, that your, your wound is the way, your pain is the path, your tears are the trail. Yeah. Like that, that's the direction you have to go. And that's the hardest one to walk because that's the one that hurts you the most. But that, down that path of hurt is the, is the ultimate healing. Um, I want to I end this with the way that, that you know, we always end these, these shows, these podcasts, which is just to always remind parents that you have to take care of yourself first. You take care of your adult relationship second. You take care of your children third, because in that way we do our best work with the kids. Um, folks, you have to get this book. It's Which Way by Jan and Sherry Simmons. It's available on Amazon. Um, Which Way? This book is profound, and you'll see what I mean, because it, it, it hits you with the left hook right out of the gate. You, you guys didn't pull any punches in this. On either side, explaining why and explaining what happened. Like, like you just, it's not just, it's not just a, a potent, powerful story. It's a learning experience. It's an education throughout the whole thing. Um, thank you. Thank yeah. you, Jan. Thanks. Thank you for having us. Of course. And thank you, Sherry. Yes. Thanks for doing this. On your day off, I might yeah. mention. Folks, <laughs> she's here on her day off. Um, I want to thank I want to thank the boss goddess, Kristen Walker at Mental Health News Radio for the constant love and support of our show. I want to thank Dan Cropper, the editor of this show uh, and the work he does. Uh, I want to thank my guests, Jan and Sherry. And uh, thank you, folks, for listening to this, for putting in the time and the effort uh, to learn one more thing, to try one more new dance step, as Sherry says, to do this work with your kids. Take care of yourself. And uh, we'll see you next week on Beyond Risk and Back. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Beyond Risk and Back. Join us each week for your connection to experts in adolescent health and wellness, recovery, and responsibility, and also to listen to teens talk about their lives in crisis. For more information on our program for struggling teens or me, please go to firemountainprograms.com, join us on Facebook at Fire Mountain Residential Treatment Center, or at Beyond Risk and Back. Visit our YouTube channel at Fire Mountain RTC for even more support with our parent training videos. Special thanks to Mental Health News Radio for their continued love and support of our program. Please go to mentalhealthnewsradio.com to see all of their podcasts. Feel free to email me at Aaron at firemountainprograms.com. <laughs>